0: Welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement.
1: The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism, and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts.
0: And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. So again, our guest today is Dr. Paul Ortiz. Dr. Paul Ortiz is a first-generation college student third generation military veteran, uh, and he is a professor of history and director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. Uh, He is president of the United Faculty of Florida AFL-CIO, recipient of the Cesar Chavez Award, Florida Education Association. He is a former organizer uh, with the United Farm Workers of Washington State and Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Uh, His book, uh, which is very well known and um, man, just uh, life changing, really, Uh, An African American and Latin X History of the United States, was recently included on the list of 850 books targeted by Texas lawmakers because they might make students feel discomfort, guilt, anguish or any other form of psychological distress because of their race or sex. We're going to get into all of that today. Dr. Yes. Paul, Patrice, thank you so much for joining us on Black, Brown, and Bilingue.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. I'm excited.
1: Um, quick question before we jump in, though. Uh, my husband is also a veteran. Which military branch?
2: So I'm a third-generation military veteran, and so I was actually in the 82nd Airborne Division and 7th Special Forces in the mid '80s in Central America, oh. and my father was actually recruited to take part in the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, didn't go. He actually also met Fidel Castro. By the way, my father is pretty remarkable. And then, but my elders who fled here uh, during the Mexican Revolution in 1914. Uh, also began serving in the military, so we've had people from World War One, World War Two. Um, my great uncle was a war hero in the Pacific, but he came back just really shattered um, and died very shortly after. They called it survivor's guilt. Um, and uh, and then of course, you know, I had you know in-laws and family who were in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I grew up mainly in a town called Bremerton, Washington which is a shipyard town, so a lot of people in the Navy and the Marines, my father retired from the Navy, Um, and so uh, war was all we knew. I mean, growing up, everyone on my block, I mean, when people would talk about, you know, young men coming home in body bags, uh, the tail end of the Vietnam War, I mean, those young men were my best friends, you know, fathers or older brothers or things like that, and so... Mm -hmm. You know, we hear we hear we hear that this phrase a lot in the Chicano community growing up. Same thing with the Black communities, and the phrase was, you know, things were much better before the war, and you'd hear that over and over again. And you kind of, as kids though, we'd wonder, like, when would that have been? Because, <laughs> right. You know, we were always sent to fight something, and so my war just happened to be in Central America, and then. And so I was a soldier of empire, but it was it was the beginning of of a series of epiphanies Mm -hmm. and uh, wake up calls, you know, number one, like what was I doing, you know, in Honduras and all these other places? And because when I got home and I would tell people what was up, they'd say, oh, no, Paul, uh, you were down there um, uh, helping us uh, avoid a Castro style revolution. And I said, brother, if you think that then uh, (laughs) I got some cheap, Uh, swampland in florida to sell you uh, because that's not at all what was happening and so it was kind of it became it it really spurred me to try to figure out you know what's going on here in this society that people are so like duped including myself
1: Mm. that is so interesting um you know like we often talk about um Just some of like the the heroes that white children in the education system get exposed to and a lot, you know, that military background, but you really don't hear about like Chicanos that were in the the armed forces. Um, You've also used the phrase like radical history. Can you explain to our listeners what this is and does that tie into your military background at all? Or kind of can you tell us a little bit more
2: about that? You know, it does, because I didn't find this out until years later. But the people who really were in the forefront of creating radical history, every Chicano just about that was in the academy up until the late 90s was a military veteran that, that I knew. And, and so many military veterans. And now we're talking about people like, say, Franz Fanon or E.P. Thompson or Howard Zinn. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on and on. And it's no mistake that those those individuals who saw military uh, uh, you know, combat saw the, the really the, the interior of the empire, if you will. They saw the, the. So when I was in Central America, we were doing just really bad things. I mean, that's all I can say is that we were there supposedly you know, promoting democracy. Well, I was a 20 year old sergeant, in U.S. Special Forces. I had never voted in my entire life. I never even voted in a school board election. So mm-hmm. how was I going to be promoting democracy? And so that, that you know, it didn't, it you know, I didn't wake up. I don't want to give you the impression that all of a sudden I woke up one day and said, hey, we need to get radical to change this thing. But the idea of, of doing radical history, when I got home to the U.S., uh, home, <laughs> in quotes, to the U.S. In, in, in 1987, the first book that someone put in my hands was by Howard Zinn. People's History of the United States. And they said, hey, this was written by a fellow veteran. This is a person you can trust. And so I just got hooked right away to this idea of radical history where you go to the root, you go to the, go to the source of the problem and you say, mm-hmm. you know, if you have misogyny, if you have white supremacy, then, you know, you deal with it as a system. You try to root it out as a system. You try to understand how the system was created. Um, you don't do it one at a time kind of thing like how they do in bourgeois societies. And they'll say, well, like in the late 60s, when, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. helped create the Poor People's Campaign, he said this whole idea of, of rooting out poverty one person at a time is morally corrupt. He said, mm-hmm. why don't we just work to abolish poverty across the board? And that mm-hmm. was a radical solution to, to poverty. And so that's really what I guess I mean by radical history is if we want to get to the root of both the problems, but also the solutions as well, know the radical social movements whether you're talking about the chicana movement the black power movement the puerto rican liberation movement the farm worker movement these are the reasons we have what we have right now um and and so i wanted that book an african-american of sister united states to honor experiences that our elders and ancestors had in bringing us what we have today instead of the same old nonsense i mean Now that I think about my understanding of history was that before I got into becoming a historian, Mm -hmm. it's rather embarrassing, I have to say. Um, I mean, you know, we You were a product
1: of the system, though, weren't you?
2: (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, we read (laughs) about these people, Alexander Hamilton, and how grateful we were supposed to be to him. And then we actually read his words, what he said about Native people, you know, what he said about people who are not rich. You know, you're like, wow, he really didn't like any of us. And so you're like... But that's the, that's what the system pushes us to do to humiliate ourselves. Yes. And so we still have people of color running around talking about how much they owe or we owe to Adams or Hamilton or, or Jefferson when they had nothing but contempt for us. I mean, their words drip with contempt. I mean, when I was doing research and, and you know, look, I'm not saying you, you replace them and you take them out of history books because they should be there. If you're doing a U.S. history from 1776 to present. Jefferson should be there. Hamilton should be there, but put them in the proper light, you know, make sure people right. know like what they really thought and did. And so, and they get them to understand there's a big difference between Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Hamilton. The difference is that Benjamin Franklin at the constitutional convention is like, Hey, y'all, we got to end slavery now. Uh, you know, I, I, he, he said, it took me a long time to get to this point, but I'm like, we, we got to end this right now. And mm. While all the other so-called founding fathers were like, you know, Mr. Franklin, you know, you're getting on an age a little bit, you know, maybe you just need to just go 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 back to sleep or something. Mm. So go, take a, they, go <laughs> take a nap. Go take a nap. So that was part of what I was trying to do with African-American Latinx history is to restore agency to the founding fathers. You know, mm. give props where they deserve. You know, let's talk about Thomas Paine. I wish. Wish Brother Miranda would have done a musical on Brother Thomas Paine.
1: I was Ooh. just about to say that. Or maybe Ben Franklin, <laughs> yeah. right? Come or on. Even girl. Franklin. Let's Thank
2: you. It. Even Franklin. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: Why Hamilton? Right. It's, 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 it is hard, Paul, because we, we're big fans of the musical as a, as a We definitely are.
2: Love um, the soundtrack. Love it. Yes. Yes.
1: yes. So I do want to follow up with one more question, though, because um, I like you, I grew up and I went through the American public school system and essentially felt invisible as a Chicana. There was, I mean, if you were lucky, you got like a couple of lessons on Cesar Chavez and that was it. Um, And so a lot of the learning that I had to go back and do was my own like research. And one of the most profound like documentaries and books Um, was John Perkins, I don't know if you're familiar, Confessions of an Economic Hitman and how the United States goes into other countries, particularly in Latin America, under the guise of spreading um, democracy and providing aid, but eventually just indebting those countries to the United States indefinitely because they will never be able to repay the loans or whatever services are given. um, And... When we hear things like particularly immigration from Latin American countries, people don't understand that history, right? Like, how did we arrive to this point? Um, could you speak to that a little bit?
2: You know, I just finished teaching my Latino history survey uh, at the University of Florida. And the last book we read is uh, Juno Diaz's book, The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. Mm -hmm. And Brief and Wondrous Life is is a beautiful book. My students, you know, they take ownership of that book. I have a a lot of Dominican students and and the the Dominican students especially. But, you know, other students from the the Latinx diaspora take ownership, too, Mm -hmm. because it's truly a book about diaspora. I mean, you mentioned earlier Cesar Chavez. So a lot of my training that allowed me to write this book was through the United Farm Workers and getting to know Dolores Huerta and these other incredible leaders. I, I was never lucky enough to, to get to know Cesar, but my wife met him when she was 15 years old. Oh, wow. She was grouping a farm in Homestead, Florida. And so she got hooked in the movement for life. I joined later after I got out of the military and I met Dolores. And I've, I've actually done two oral histories with her. And to me, she is one of the most significant yeah. Americans in, in, in our entire history. And I I require my students every time she comes down here, you know, that you have to go because this is not like, you know, not like I'm saying, oh, she's just a historical icon, but she lives this life where she's saying, hey, we need to step it up for LGBT people, for trans people, for all people who are oppressed. We can't just be about us folks, you know, and and about our own thing. And so she was such a great, continues to be a great teacher. Um, But and I've lost the, the thread. Uh, to your, to your question, Liz. I, uh,
1: no, you're okay. No, <laughs> d- about, you know, just even yeah. how do we end up in the situation where people end up coming to the United States
2: oh, and, and, right and the
1: e- economic hitman, the confessions, you know, the book by yeah. John Perkins.
2: Well, you know, in Brief and Wonders Life, I mean, that's a book which talks about, it begins in Patterson, the, the Dominican community and Patterson communities. And, and then it takes us back to the U.S. support for the Trujillo regime, the, the, the vicious tortures. The, the reason that so many people from the, from the DR come to the U.S. is because of U.S. support for um, imperialism and dictatorship in the DR. And that's what Juan Gonzalez calls the harvest of empire. Mm-hmm. And the reason my family came is that, I mean, we're still trying to piece this together, but our family literally fled Mexico the same week that the U.S. Marines invaded Tampico. And went to occupied U.S. oil fields, which were being threatened with nationalization in 1914. And so, so many of us, whether we're from Cuba, Mexico, the DR, Haiti, we arrive here because of U.S. interventions in those countries. When I came back home in 86, I was shocked, Lisette, because so many of my friends would say, Paul, you know, you were down there. Why are all these Hondurans in East Los Angeles. Why are all these Salvadorans in Seattle or Tacoma? And I would say, you don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. I said, your country is fueling these civil wars. It's making their living conditions in Nicaragua and Honduras and Colombia impossible. They can't live there anymore. And so they have to move north or it's a trade agreement. And I think Juan Gonzalez and Harvest of Empire is really good about talking about war, but also the trade agreements are maybe even a bigger factor because, you know, you passed NAFTA in 1994. And I remember in the, in the farm worker movement, we fought NAFTA tooth and nail. I mean, we got Mm -hmm. arrested, we got chased by the police. I remember Jesse Jackson was there with us on the picket line. I remember Bill Clinton betrayed us and the, 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 and, and, and we, we, we were not economists, but we were told by Mexican farmers that if it passed, And they were telling us this in 91, 92, that if it passed, that it was going to wipe out small farming in Mexico. Mm
0: -hmm. And in
2: fact, that's what it did. It did to small farming in Mexico, talking about NAFTA, what banks did to small farmers in the U.S. in the 1890s and 1910s. You know, Mm -hmm. that's why small farming in this country became untenable. The same thing they did to the small farmers in Kansas in the 1910s banks did to to small farmers in Mexico in the 1990s, or in Haiti. I mean, even even just as bad or worse, flooding a nation of small farmers with the same commodities that those small farmers grow, especially rice. And so years later, Bill Clinton comes back and he issues, uh, I guess it was an apology. You know, I apologize for pushing this trade agreement, but that trade agreement against Haiti caused thousands of Haitian small farmers to have to leave the land and either move to the cities in Haiti or then migrate to the U.S. The same thing happens in the British Empire or the French Empire. The same thing: you go to London today, you'll find a lot of people from the former British West Indies or the French West Indies, Martinique, Guadeloupe, yes. so on and so forth in Paris or more in Marseille. It's an imperial thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 really that's really interesting. I think I've. I think I was aware to some degree, right, that that the trade agreements played that role, but really to hear uh, some of those other pieces too is really um, uh, imp- impactful. Particularly, we've talked a little bit uh, about how then, how fights against things like that have been partnered with the NAACP and how sometimes there's this, this idea of com- competition, right, between the NAACP or, or other black organizations and and our, our um, uh, you know Latinx organizations and some of those pieces um, in fact we, we we've got another episode and we um, talked with uh, Nicholas Sivaca uh, about that black brown divide as a concept now mm-hmm. I, I'll, I I'd love to get there or, or just perhaps get your thoughts there on as you wrote this book called the African American and Latinx history of right? were there times where where these two groups were coming together? Were there times where
2: where they've kind of um, been at at odds with one another? Yeah, well, I mean, let me start by saying I'm a big fan of Nick Baca's work. I mean, he's obviously a a great icon and and a great, uh, you know, elder intellectual that learned so much. And there's a lot of great literature that talks directly about Tensions between the movements you you alluded to, even you know within African American civil rights organizations, you know SNCC, CORE, SCLC, NAACP, Urban League, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When I was growing up, frankly within the Chicano community, there was probably more tensions between Mexicans and Puerto Ricans than there was between <laughs> yeah. Mexicans and black. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I think it depends on what angle you're coming from. I I don't want to duck the question, but I'll take a step back. So what I was most concerned of in writing an African-American and Latinx history of the U.S. was first to make sure that we placed Haiti, Mexico, and Cuba at the center of U.S. history uh, for starters. And I believe I could make the argument that those three nations should be at the centerpiece, not just starting in 1959, Or, you know, the year the Black Panthers, the young lords start in the late 60s. But let's start in 1776. And let's talk about the centrality of Latin America and the Caribbean and Africa to U.S. history. Now, keep in mind, I only had 200 pages. Uh, The the wonderful people at Beacon Press said, Paul, no one reads 500 page books, only you historians. Right. Mm. And so I leave a lot of things out, but I really wanted to start by centering, and, not, and not, not, again, not taking white people out of the picture, but placing Mexico, placing people like Jose Maria Morelos at the center, placing Toussaint Louverture at the center, placing the Cuban liberation war against the Spanish empire, because I could see, and, and I, my keys to learning were people in the Black abolitionist movement in the 1810s and 1820s, they were the ones who kind of, you know, recentered my understanding of, of these freedom struggles, frankly. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the freedom struggles that were taking place happen on parallel lines. And so for example, in my chapter on Reconstruction in the book, it's clear that there's a very, it's clear that actually the largest black national movement at the time is a movement created in solidarity with the Cuban liberation struggle. And there were many African-Americans in New York, people like Henry Highland Garnett. He was English, Spanish bilingual. Uh, he was in close contact with Antonio Maceo and other leaders of the Cuban liberation movement. So that was one long-term example of kind of black-brand solidarity in that classic sense where you're, where you're sometimes even in the same movement spaces, right? There was a, there was a physical address in the Bowery um, you know, where people would meet, immigrants you know, from Cuba, former african american abolitionists and and that was that was a moment of solidarity that i thought was important to talk about but you're right i mean also moments of great tension as well you know look capitalism is a, a the the system that's created that we have to work with is created as a zero sum game and we're told to compete against each other and i remember as a kid this was the i grew up in the backlash era in the 70s and I I was living in, in the East Bay in California and every other news show that was on, it would be an angry, oftentimes white person talking about how the blacks and the Mexicans had gained too many rights at the expense of white people. And it was, you know, Clint Eastwood was everywhere, you know, the Dirty Harry movies and everything, right? <laughs> and, um, but it was very um, eye-opening as, as a young boy. And I remember we would walk to school in San Leandro and I would walk from Marina Boulevard to Garfield Elementary School, and there were just a very few black and brown kids, and we would kind of huddle together, and, you know, white adults would drive by us and throw things at us, man, they would throw, like, beer cans, and for some reason, um, uh, Budweiser, I I don't even like Budweiser to this day, because I associate with people throwing cans, and they would yell at us, they would say, go back, you know, uh, go back to your home, go back where you belong, and as fourth graders, we would think, well, man, we can't go back home. We get into trouble with our parents. We're supposed to go into school. And as we got a little older, we realized, no, they're saying go back to Mexico, go back to Africa. And and they were, and the other thing that they would say over and over again was, You people lost the war. Get over it. And that was so confusing to me because I grew up with a lot of different wars in mind. And, and again, as I got a little older, I'm like, oh damn, they're talking about the Mexican-American War. Yes. You know, you people lost the war, get over it. And there was some kind of mindset among Anglos, not all of them, but the, the ones who seemed to be angry and dominated so much of our lives that, um, yeah, it was just a very intense time to, to grow up in. But my time in the farm worker movement, I learned how both to create social movements, but also how fragile they could be. The Rainbow Coalition was a great example because at its best the rainbow coalition was this big tent that encompassed LGBT, Chicano, uh, Puerto Rican, black, anti parte you know, organizers and you know we'd often do things together but then other times especially when it got to electoral politics sometimes for some reason we would kind of spiral apart and and it'd say well you know the rainbow supporting this person and the labor people would be like, well, we don't like that person, you know. And then we would clash. But I remember, you know, I'll never forget. I, I just think we owe such a great debt in the farmworker movement to Jesse Jackson, and and that debt will never be repaid. Reverend Jackson is the last person, to my knowledge, who went to the, to the presidential, uh, uh, the the Democratic National Convention, and used his speech to support the farmworker movement he told, he would tell people boycott grapes or boycott. Um, I think the year he's, the yes, end, I, yeah, right? mm-hmm. and he would use those platforms to support workers movements. And, and it was such a great lift for us, especially when we'd see the mainstream, of the democratic party in the nineties moving away and saying, well, we, we need a new democratic party. You know, we need to be much more open to the the upwardly mobile affluent people in Silicon Valley or, or, or upper Manhattan or something like that. So yeah, the coalition thing, the coalitions were often fragile. So that, that was something that was, um, was interesting to learn.
1: Um, you know, the Maurice and I have talked at great lengths about this idea because we're educators, right? We are elementary school principals. And so, and, and Maurice is actually a former history teacher. And we talk about how ill-prepared teachers are to teach this radical history. Um, And one of the biggest things that I always talk about again is feeling largely invisible, but seeing black history as a source of inspiration. However, as I got older and became an educator, I saw what a disservice we did to black children in teaching history, right? Because we always just show them slavery. And 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 even maybe this is just a, a controversial thought that has crossed my mind. But I think that the way that slavery and just the black experience has been taught in the United States does more harm to the psyche of Black children than not being represented at all. Like, like it was almost better for me, like as I look back, like would they have done my history justice? Would I've walked around with, um, you know, this feeling of, I don't know, inferiority or whatever, um, had they included it more? What are your thoughts on that? Like, do you no. think it'd be better, it was better to be left out than to be terribly represented?
2: Well, it's a great question. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example from Mexico. And so, you know, Mexico in many ways has, a, has an excellent educational system, you know, depending on where you're at. it's It's like any large country, There's some places where it's really strong, other places, you know, not quite so strong. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: When it comes time to commemorate the war of independence and Mexican independence in September, every September, we have the same debate year after year. How, uh, I'll use the term radical, how radical should the celebration be? Because on its surface in Mexico City, you know, we ring the bells and there's this idea that Oh, this was a great day. We gained our independence from the mother country, but there's very little talk about imperialism or slavery. And especially there's not talk much about, well, who actually led the war of independence? Like who even fought it? And because they fought it, it was a race war. It was a war against slavery. It was a war against the oppression of indigenous peoples. And when my students in the U.S., because I've I've worked with a lot of first generation students from Mexico who are the products of of, of good educations in Mexico. But then they come to the U.S. and they take my, you know, my (laughs) Latinx history one on one course. And they're like, wow, no one ever told us that that half of our freedom fighters were black and indigenous peoples. And they were Mm -hmm. generals that led white people into battle. Like we never learned that. And that the first day of the, of, of the, the cry for independence, there were a lot, a lot of them said death to white people. And so, and they meant it too. They, they weren't just messing around because they saw the, they saw Europeans as the key source of their oppression and their bondage, mm-hmm. whether they were really in bondage as slaves or whether they're in bondage as indigenous people. So this is kind of an elliptical response to your question, Is that mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, teach slavery but if you if you place what what a difference if you can place Harriet Tubman at the center of the story, instead of people who are in bondage and have no hope and everything, or placing Frederick Douglass or the Mexico Corollary, uh, Jose Morelos, or the Freedom Fighters. Okay. That's how I see because I I agree one hundred percent with 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 Malcolm X's um, insights on this too because Malcolm had much the same critique that you did about the ways in which, you know, young black children were being taught. They're being taught that, oh, we only had a history of slavery. That's why when um, we, we, I was an outside uh, expert reviewer for the Connecticut standards on African-American on what they call black and Latino histories. So in Mm -hmm. Connecticut now you are required to graduate from Connecticut public schools. You must take a sequence in black and Latino Mm -hmm. Puerto Rican histories. That's a requirement. Mm Not an elective, and so this is an issue that we kicked around and, and debated and dialogue, and we said we've got to make sure that Pete that the children understand the incredible cultural agency, the economic agency, the fights for freedom and emancipation, um, you know, the wars, and 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 those had to be in there too, so that people didn't just see black and brown people as passive victims right you know what i mean there was resistance
1: there was joy people were getting married you know they were um and maurice is really passionate about that go ahead i know you want to jump in like there was still resistance people were finding uh ways to stick it to the man (laughs) yeah
0: i'm 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 trying to i'm trying to monitor because my dog is also barking in the background here (laughs) um but i did i definitely wanted to jump in just because i think um, it's so important, right, that we talk about the fact that, that these people were not passive, right? They were not sitting around allowing this to happen to them and that that resistance definitely plays a major role. And I don't think I heard any of that. And even as a young history teacher, I came in and I elevated black and brown people, right? And I elevated women in, in the conversation, but I don't think, I think I'd be a better history teacher today than I
2: was, you know, at 23 um, when, yeah. I, when I first got into the game. Me too, because I didn't know any of this too. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll share a story because both of your principals, I think you'll enjoy this story. So in our local, um, uh, we have a, a school, local K through six school that always has had a very good reputation, gets good scores, you know, Florida, you can argue one way or the other what, what that means, right? But it's a really solid school. Well, the name of the school for 80 years, was J.J. Finley. Now, J.J. Finley was a Confederate general. And so the school is named after him in 1930. And two summers ago, the chair of the NAACP in our county called me and said, Paul, two two points for you right now. Number one, you've just been delegated the position of official historian of the Alachua County NAACP. I'm like, okay, what does that entail? Um, well, it entails, we want you to do a study on J.J. Finley to tell us if, if a school should be named after this man. Well, I already kind of knew the answer, but <laughs> right? <laughs> I, but I did some research. I looked into law books because he was a judge and everything and it took me just a few days and I got back with the NAACP and I said, look, this was a bad man. He was a bad man. I mean, even his own people said, this guy is a bad dude you know, and I don't know how on earth the school was named after him, much less 80 years. So, um, but one good turn deserves another. So after I wrote this brief, they said, okay, now you got to be in the renaming committee. So as you can imagine, as school administrators, the politics for that renaming committee were very complicated and fraught, because many people, because our first thought on the committee was, you know, it was named after a a bad white man for 80 years. What about naming after like a good black person, Um, you know, or someone who actually deserves to have their name in a school. And right away we had resistance. People were like, no, don't make the same mistake, Paul. Name it after a river, Uh, name it after a forest or a tree. Wouldn't that be more neutral? Uh, And and I'm like, I I don't know. I don't know if I wanna name the school after a river or a tree, you know? And
0: what does
1: neutrality do? <laughs> right. How is being neutral in something like this? Where does that even get us?
2: So here's the outcome. I'll bore you with the long, I'll skip the long story. The outcome was we we found a brilliant African-American female scientist, Carolyn Beatrice Parker. She had grown up in Gainesville during segregation, was never given opportunities educationally, brilliant mathematician. She had to go away to go to school. She came back with an MA and taught science In Gainesville, and during the Great Depression, Gainesville, Florida, the town I'm talking about from now, during World War II, she was so brilliant as a scientist that she was recruited to work on the Manhattan Project. Wow. That's how smart she was. And she was earning her PhD, but she died shortly after World War II of leukemia. Uh, Most of the people that worked in her uh, lab in the Manhattan Project died of leukemia, probably because of exposure to radioactivity, right? So anyway, we fought a struggle to make sure that we named the school after Carolyn Parker. And it's Carolyn Parker Elementary to this day. Uh-huh. And the young um, African-American, um, you know, uh, teachers and um, actually the office manager that works in the oral history program I direct has two children in that school. And she said one of the joyous days of her life as a black mother was when her two children came to her and said, Mommy, why was the school renamed? Cause the teachers didn't tell her initially, you know, who is Carolyn Parker and a mother, black mother was able to tell her black daughters, Hey, Carolyn Parker was as a black scientist in the thirties and forties. And we can aspire to, you know, to be, it was, can you kind of, kind of anything we can do kind of thing. And, um, you know, people like me take that for granted, you know, I'm almost 60 years old at this point. But when I heard that story, I was like, Oh my gosh, there's a lot at stake here. Yeah. And sometimes we forget how important these things are. Um, yeah. You know.
0: Definitely. So, so Paul, you, 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 you've kind of referenced it, um, the idea that, that you too uh, went through a growing experience, right? I think we, um, we sometimes, even as, um, as young administrators and, and folk who are aspiring to be world changers and leaders in the movement of equity, diversity and inclusion, um, sometimes we, we wanna be able to get there, right? And, and we're actually gonna start on a book and all these different things, right? But you didn't just jump to a book, right? You were once a history student <laughs> in college. You were once a, a beginning history professor. Um, and we, we heard you um, give a keynote um, on a speech and you talked a little bit about how much you learned even from your students who began to say, listen, whatever you thought they were doing, here's what it means in our country, right? What what that war meant or what, can you talk a little bit about that journey? Because when I think about history professors, I tend to think of older white men. Um, however, I will say my very first black male teacher I had when I was 21, it was a professor named Conrad Hamilton at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. And he was, half Black, half Japanese. And he told the story that his his mother and his father had to move to an, or go to another state to get married because there were still anti-miscegenation laws on the books. And yeah, I think they were in Oregon, so they had to go to Washington to get married. Um, but I often tell the story of just sitting and being enamored with this professor who, for the first time, looked like me right? and, and what that meant to me. So can you talk a little bit about your journey to becoming The Paul Ortiz who gets his book banned.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think a lot of that has to do, again, Maurice, with how how we kind of grew up. And, you know, in a society that was very violent um, and there was just a lot of death and but the death was connected to to different wars. And just having the sense of growing up and realizing, you know, I was on my way into the military and then, you know, realizing at a certain point, you know, why did this happen? Why do we have to continue on with this cycle? And I guess, especially being in Central America and seeing the devastation that I was a part of inflicting, you know, in retrospect, it would have been much better if I would went down there with books or anything other than what I went down there with, which was guns. But, you know, I grew up in a gun culture. I grew up in a very violent culture where you know, you solve your problems um, with force, lethal force. And it's not machismo. It's not a black thing. It's not a Mexican thing. It's an American thing. And I'll tell you one of my, one of my big wake up calls, which was an epiphany. It was actually the, my very last day in the military. And I still don't know how this happened, but you know, any veteran there knows that phrase, hurry up and wait. And so I was in the hurry up and wait phase on my last day in the military was in Panama City and my way to get onto a C-130 flight to Miami and then get back, you know, someplace in the U.S. And so I had some time to wait. And so I walked across the street to the small post library and I went through, I always loved to read. And I found a very thin book. I thought I'll have time to read through this, you know, because I have a couple hours to kill. So I started reading this book. And to this day, I have no idea how it was I picked up this book because I didn't see the title. But I'm just, I'm reading through this book and I'm like, this is the most remarkable thing I've ever read in my life. And these passages were things like, you know, you know, our people have suffered for 350 years. We've been patient, and you've asked us to wait. You've asked us to, you'll you you told us you'll take care of the problem, but we're not going to wait anymore. And we're going to use this thing called nonviolence, nonviolent civil disobedience. And it just blew me away. I'm like, what is that? I never heard of it my entire life, the idea of nonviolence. And it was like someone, it might might as well have been in hieroglyphics. I mean, I'm reading this, I'm like, what? I mean, 350 years, if we had a problem like that, we'd pick up a gun and sort it out where I grew up. And this man was talking about doing things peacefully, but not in a pacifistic way, being aggressive, boycotts, fights, sit-ins, things like that. And I could tell, I didn't understand it. It took me many years, in fact, to understand the book. But by now, you know, I'm talking about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Letter from a Birmingham Jail. To me, that single book was the most important part of my journey um, into becoming a radical history professor. Um, Another step was in high school. You know, Maurice, alluded to being in high school, but I had an incredible Anglo teacher, his name was Don Bidwell, And he would put these books in your hands and he would say, he tricked us. He talked about, talk about bad books. He'd say, well, you know, you're not going to find this book in your, in, in the school library. It's not going to be in the downtown public library. It's not going to be in a bookstore in Bremerton. You're going to have to go to Seattle to get it. Well, why Mr. Bidwell? Well, it has some mature sequences in it all. Like it has some sex in it maybe and cussing. I'm like, I'm on the first ferry to Seattle, Washington to get that book. And I still have those books to this day. But that book that woke me up, I would think more than any single book in my life, Richard Wright's Native Son. Yes. That book, and I've talked to so many Chicano writers, more recently. Zet in later years, I've given this lecture about the importance for us when we first encountered Richard Wright's Native Son, because it was a wake-up call. And it gave us the ability to go into, quote, unquote, our own literature to start reading Luis Rodriguez, uh, Anaya, Carlos Fuentes, et cetera, et cetera, because Wright taught us about systemic uh, racism. He taught us the problem wasn't us. He taught us stop hating yourself. This is a much bigger problem and uses the character of Bigger Thomas to point this out. I think a lot of people misunderstand that character. But to me, I'm like, wow, I need to stop hating myself. And I remember crying reading that because a high school student yep even though it was based in a different time in a different place in a different community than I grew up, I'm like, wow, I understood for the first time the problems that I was growing up weren't my fault. It was the world I was growing up in. That was corrupt. Not me, not the children. And so right. You know, it was just such an incredible uh, way. And now it didn't stop me from going to the army. And so, like I said, I don't think we have these epiphanies all at once. I think they're I, I, now that I'm 58 sure. years old. I can see the stepping stones. Richard Wright's native son, um, uh, Luis Rodriguez's, you know, never stop running. Um, Dr. King's, you know, letter from Birmingham jail meeting, working in the movement, all of those things for me were stepping stones. And, and the big takeaway though was honor our elders, our ancestors and struggle, realize that, that we're not where we are now. I mean, we couldn't even have this conversation in 1776 we'd all right. be working in the field, right. you know, we'd all be working in the back, you know, for the man. And so yeah. how is it that we have a relative degree of freedom that our ancestors did not have? Well, they fought for it and they bled for it.
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to jump into your book directly because we um, there's an article that just came out that Luloc, um is uh looking to protest right or organizing a protest tomorrow i believe i um, at the texas capitol and your book is on that list they're protesting i'm sorry against banned books and can you tell us a little bit about that and what has been the reception that your book has received on both sides
2: yeah well it's interesting because yeah i mean uh, it's it's really humbling because uh libra Tra- Traficante, which is a group that came into being to fight the banning of Mexican-American studies in, in, in Tucson Unified in Arizona. Yes. They're taking that, that my book, but then a bunch of other books, especially books on gender and sexuality, LGBT, trans issues. And they're going to take our books and they're buying them and they're going to be distributing them in areas that where the, these books are being banned. And so I've got a lot of reports because I have a lot of former students who teach in Texas. That's where a lot of my people live. And they've said, yeah, your book, um, I think the last school district, the uh, San Antonio Unified, or one of the big chunks of the San Antonio school district has just taken an African-American Latinx history off of its shelves and out of, out of circulation. And what they've said is that it's interesting. I've done, I can't tell you how many workshops I've done and signings and lectures. And, and the, the amazing thing Lisette, is that there's so many younger people that have taken this book and they've just adopted it, and they've said, "This, you know, you know, you may have written the book, but this book belongs to me." And uh, I'm like, "Wow, that's really cool, <laughs> you know, that's really cool." Um, and but because a, we have a lot of older people in the society, the ruling class people who want to hold on to power, they see like gender and sexuality studies as threats. They see critical race theory as threats. Um, and so there's been, on the one hand, an incredible support for the book. Um, but on the other hand, I've had people, it's interesting is I've had people tell me that when they read the book, they, they I, I've often heard the phrase, you know, as a white person, someone will tell me, you know, as a white person, your book really made me feel bad um, uh, at first. and And we'll talk about that. And that even becomes a discussion in, in, in a group setting. As a white person, your book made me feel bad. Mm. So I said, well, you know, let's kind of break that down because I'm not here. To judge people, I make it very clear. I came, from, you know, I was a soldier. I fought. I was an imperial soldier, so I have no right to judge people based on on, on my own experiences. So I want to find out, and and it there, I've tried to work with people who say that as a white person it makes me feel bad by by asking them, well, why does it make you feel bad? Let's kind of break that down. Uh, well, it makes me feel bad because I see how my ancestors were involved in oppression. I've said, well, you know, um, were all your ancestors involved in oppression? And again, getting them to think about the differences between people who, you know, were radical white abolitionists um, and, you know, definitely had flaws, but so did Frederick Douglas, my gosh. And so why not have us learn, you know, we call them allies, right? I'm not sure if I call Thomas Paine an ally. He was a straight up you know, straight shooting freedom fighter, right? But why couldn't we um, have our allies identify with the people, let's say in the South now, let, let's, 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 let's pretend we're in Texas or Florida. If, if you're a white person today, you don't have to identify with the slave owning class in Florida or Texas. You could identify with the white people, if you want to do that, uh, who are opposed to slavery. Uh, And they were the majority of the society. Um, Or you could identify with the white people who supported Black Reconstruction
0: Mm -hmm. in the
2: 1860s and 1870s. And some of them were assassinated uh, in this in Florida and in Texas. So I guess that that's it's a kind of a complicated response because on the one hand, it seems like there's an age thing. And so a lot of younger people have just picked up this book and actually Beacon Press is working on a young adult edition right now. Because, oh, oh, that's wonderful. Because so many teachers are saying, yeah, we love using a chapter here, a chapter there. But unless it's, unless it's kind of 11th, 12th grade students, they really need they, they need something a little, you know, with, with pictures and you know, mm-hmm. more, more accessible kind of thing. And so there's teachers working on that right now. So there, there's kind of these dichotomies. On the one hand, I just see kids all over the country are in an uproar and about a whole lot of issues like we just had a lot of students in Florida walk out of their classes in mass because of our so-called don't say gay bill I mean we had dozens of schools the media didn't even media didn't report what was really happening because I just think that a lot of adults were, were fearful because they had never seen you know they thought oh we finally got the Black Lives Matter movement kind of bottled up here Um, because there are a lot of students walking out in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement here. Mm -hmm. A lot of students walking out in solidarity with uh, uh, kids involved in school, uh, victims of school shootings. Mm -hmm. I was here's a here's one anecdote. I was in uh, giving a workshop with high school kids in uh, a a large high school in in the central coast of California uh, after one of the big school shootings in Florida. And we were meeting and they and I asked them, and they had read a couple chapters, uh, 90, 95% Chicano kids. And uh, they had read a couple chapters of African-American Latinx history in the United States. But I said, Well, what did you read before that book that made a big impact on you? And they said, Oh, this book called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Wow, that's really cool. Why did it make an impact on you? And these are eleventh, you know, uh, Chica- grade Chicano kids, first generation immigrants, most of them uh, from Mexico. And they said, "Well, you know, here's the interesting thing about that book, Professor Ortiz. It talks about these white people, these Jews, these Poles, these Lithuanians being oppressed in these terrible working conditions. Every night at our kitchen table, we hear the same stories." That we read about happening in 1905 or happening in you know in in, in 2020 mm. and you know and and you know we have a question for you uh when is this going to end mm. and i'm like you just began you just began the discussion you know that's the most <laughs> important discussion we right. can possibly have but then after that they kind of took me aside and say hey don't tell anyone but we're organizing a walkout in support of your, your high school students who uh, were subjected to that terrible school shooting a few years ago. and But don't tell anyone, but we want to get your ideas. We know you're an organizer. Um, what, how should we organize this? And I said, number one, I'm not going to tell you how to organize. You got it done, but I am going to give you one piece of advice. Have your news release ready to go before the action
0: because the
2: adults who run the media are going to try to make it appear as if you're walking out because you just want to get out of school uh, and you're lazy and you're trifling. And I said, that's the same thing they did in 68 against the Chicano Bloc kids. you yep. did it against ethnic studies students in San Francisco State, you know, in, in Cornell, et cetera, et cetera. So have your media ready to go. And then, in fact, a few days later, they walked out and they had a news, re- beautiful news release. This is why we're walking out. We're not walking out to, to avoid classes, in fact, we're willing to pay the price of detention for missing class, but we wanna make it clear that gun violence has to end. And, and if the adults won't do, deal with it, we'll deal with it. So I was like, wow, and th- this is what so many people, Lisette Maurice are afraid of. And so my book is just a little part of this, this, this revolution that's happening, I believe, that's really at the high school level, mm-hmm. and and people like Ron DeSantis and and Abbott in Texas, they they're they're afraid, uh, mm-hmm. and so they're they're doing these draconian types of 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 lashing lashing out, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I think in the end we're going to win.
1: I you know what I do too. I was just going to say that. I'm glad you said that because. So often, if anything, banning your book, I think is going to increase its popularity because I, too, remember sitting in an AP literature class in high school and the teacher would do the same thing, like, we're about to read these books, but, shh, you know, <laughs> these are banned books or they'd give us a list and, and it actually engaged us that much more. And I'm also thrilled to hear that um, your book is going to be made into like a kids' version or a young or a young adult version. Is that what you said?
2: Yeah, they call it YA. It's a whole thing oh, now. Yeah, a lot of, you know, because you know, like Ibram Kendi's. Uh, book I was going to say. Yes. I was uh, just about Roxanne, to say. Yeah, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. You know, she's one of my mentors. Her Indigenous People's History has been uh, made into a YA edition. Kids are. One just, of my teachers yeah. is
1: reading it. Uh, reading Stamped for Kids um and the I mean it has completely changed the conversation in her classroom and she's only a fifth grade teacher so but even like the kids started questioning like why is Abraham Lincoln on our money and um they just are it's it's really beautiful to see and I I agree I think young people will um help us win in the end. It always has yeah. been
2: young people. <laughs> it has, yeah, I mean, just, and you know, and they just need some, you know, a, a few of us old timers, you know, and uh, just to listen, the big thing is just listening. I mean, when I do teachers, like I just did a teacher's workshop with teachers, and I love going to Connecticut. I just have to uh, to admit to you. Um, and uh, because Connecticut is one of those places which has been the site of a, of a sustained black and brown student movement, a lot of Afro-Latino students and watching them, you can find some of their testimony on YouTube, where you know three or four years ago they would get up in front of these these kind of you know almost like moribund legislators, and um, and and they were like, oh, here we go again, you know, do we have to relive the '60s every day, you know? But these these yes, kids, I'm just
1: kidding,
2: <laughs> yeah, right. And middle school, high school kids are saying, you know, they were protesting for the right to read more, you know, they're asking for requirements. Make it into a requirement. And, you know, this as an educator, this thrilled me because when I first started as a professor, I would get invited by school districts to help implement elective curriculum around, you know, people of color, you know, histories, you know. And then over the past five or eight years, I've seen a new trend. I've talked to a lot of assistant superintendent types and they've said, Paul, what we're doing now does not work. And I'm working with a school district in Maryland, for example, that services about 200,000 children, uh, K through 12. And the assistant superintendent said, Paul, I'm just so tired of walking through my classes and uh, my social studies classes and seeing the kids with their heads on their desks. Um, I realized our curriculum is outmoded. It's George Washington. It's old Hamilton. It's the same. She said, I'll cuss. She said, it's the same crap when I was in when I was learning how to be a teacher, you know, 40 years ago, right. And she said, do you have people of color that you can put into the curriculum for these kids? And I'm like, the doctor's in, do (laughs) I have people for you? Do I, I, do I, (laughs) what decade do you want? What language do you want them speaking? You know, what, where, you know, where, where do you want them to be from, you know? And Mm -hmm. so to me, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll stay I'll stay in this one school district which will remain nameless for the time being but um, I got a chance to work with the superintendent over a long period of time now it's funny for me I, I I'm gonna have to admit something to y'all who are principals this is embarrassing for me I was a terrible student in public school awful How I, mean,
1: was I?
2: Yeah. I spent <laughs> more time yeah K-4 through <laughs> I spent more time in the principal's office than I did in my classroom for a number of reasons which we'll not go into now but um this, this assistant superintendent, who I got to know really well before she retired, um, you know, after working with her about three years, and it wasn't anything I did, I would just go to, to, to the summer uh, trainings and spend a day with, with the teachers. And I'll never forget one of them. We were working on a, a they were building a curriculum around chapter four of African-American Atlantic's history, the Cuban Solidarity Movement, because they had a lot of students from the Caribbean moving into this, this kind of Eastern Shore school district, and they wanted curriculum that would, they'd be able to to recognize, you know, place names, countries. Mm-hmm. And, um, and <laughs> it was a hot summer day in the Eastern Shore of Maryland, and air conditioning went out. And I thought, well, we're not mm-hmm. going to be here very long. And, uh, but because I lived in places without air conditioning, it didn't bother me. But you know, I was what was pointed out, and not a single teacher left. Not a okay. single teacher asked to leave. They were like, "Let's stand the plan." The end of that session, the assistant superintendent comes up to me, and and remember, she's the assistant superintendent of a school district that services two hundred thousand children, and she says, "Paul," and this was after the Black Lives Matter movement resurgence in the spring of twenty twenty, and she said, "Paul, you know something." I never would have said this my entire life, but you know, I'm almost 70 years old. And I think what this society needs now, more than ever, is a revolution. What do you think? I was like, wow, (laughs) yeah, I I guess I think we do need a revolution. I didn't expect you to tell me we needed a revolution. Good for her. (laughs) Yeah, it was just amazing to see so many people from unexpected places I mean, I never would have thought Connecticut would be like at the center of the studies movement.
1: Yeah, I I, I keep thinking like Connecticut, Connecticut. Our secretary of education is from Connecticut, right? Miguel Cardona?
2: Yeah, there's all the, yeah.
1: He's also from Connecticut. I guess I never thought, look at my ignorance. I never really thought about um, that area of having such a large Latino population and
2: the, the, you know the 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 Puerto Rican diaspora there is really strong
1: in and Connecticut
2: in Connecticut wow and a lot of you know a lot of independence minded um, elders whose kids live there now and Puerto Rico of course has this vibrant you know it's not a left-right thing you know they they still have people who are anarchists socialists people who are in different left okay. tendencies and and we're working you know I'm working out with with the teachers who are working with those kids who are their grandkids right. and um, and they have fire in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like when I, you know, for years I've taught about the Chicago blowout in 1968, Oregon ethnic studies struggles in, you know, the West coast or in the Northeast and colleges in the early seventies. And I've got to say, I think there's more momentum now among younger people than I've ever seen. I mean, that first spring, after the black lives matter movement came out and let's you know, I just want to be clear. I mean, the success of African-American Latin access in the U S is due primarily to, to the younger people we're talking about now and especially right. the black lives matter movement. My first Hispanic heritage month after the black, after the resurgence of black lives matter blew up. I mean, it was, it was incredible. I had three times as many gigs as I had the prior Hispanic heritage month. And it, would, it was Latino organizations in like South Chicago, East LA, Hialeah, Florida, Miami, uh, West Palm, South Bronx. And two thirds of them were, tell, were asking me, Paul, we want a Hispanic Heritage Month presentation where you center the issue of anti-Black racism because we've got to deal with this in our communities. Uh, what, do you, uh, uh, what do you think? And, and that only became possible because of the movement, because of so many people in motion and beginning to connect the dots. Okay, well, you know, young, a young black man was gunned down by the police or brutalized by the police. Oh, well, did you know that a Chicano kid, does the same thing happened to him and, uh, and nothing was heard about? So, so how can we? And then again, the literature, you both alluded to the importance of that literature. So when my students read Junot Diaz, even if they've never been part of a movement, they're reading about a writer who's talking about anti-blackness within the Dominican diaspora. And how, how are we gonna deal with this? Because we can't continue to allow this to destroy and undermine our families. Because when we talk about black and brown tensions, let's be clear, it's not about black and brown tensions between Third Avenue and Fifth Avenue. It's within our own families. It's phenotype, hair style, hair type, um, you know, uh, nose shape within our own families. And this is a legacy of Spanish and Portuguese and British and Dutch and French imperialism. Because for centuries, that's how we moved it through the empire. Mm -hmm. And to think that we're somehow going to just jettison that um, is ridiculous, you know, and and, and that's what (laughs) I think, you know what I mean? And so I think yep. that's where the literature is so very important. And what you all are doing is just, is really, is, is at the forefront. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh,
0: man, I, oh, so much. I, I, I would, I would respond. I, um, and I'll just say a couple of things, just a couple of things. And then uh, Paul, we're going to let you go. We're not going to keep you here all night. We're going to wrap things up here in just a moment. Um, but I did take a class. It was a 300 level Spanish class. And I remember it was all in Spanish and it was super hard. And it was called Afredentidad y Hispanidad. Mm. And it was about the African diaspora throughout the, the Latin American world. And we learned about pigmentocracia and we learned about blanqueando la raza, right? Like this idea of whitening the race that you married lighter so that you could I mean, to the point that I had a student in my building come to me and say, well, Mr. McDavid, this kid is calling me Black, and he called me the N-word. Like, that's 2022 that we're still engaging in some of these conversations. So now he's talking to his Black bilingual principal. And I said, is there something wrong with being Black? And he, "Well, no, no. In fact, I think it's cool. And I think he was telling the (laughs) truth, right? but at the same time, even though he thought it was cool, he also there was something in his mind that said, "Okay, but I don't necessarily want to be actually <laughs> right? right." So I, I I think that's definitely a whole nother piece that we could definitely jump onto. But I, I wanted to um I wanted to ask you just kind of this question. Um, normally we we let our guests close us out with like just a final thought, but. But this was a question that we had kind of talked about and you've kind of alluded to it earlier Um, but I think it's a good one for you as uh, as we look at your book if you had to replace a founding father right like if you had to make a case for like okay and maybe it's Hamilton right let's say we're going to take Hamilton out (laughs) and you're going to replace that founding father with with an equally important or 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 perhaps more important person of color from our history, from that time period or 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 maybe later on. Who's that person? Who's, who's the replacing founding father and 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 why? And and we'll close
2: on that note. Oh my gosh, how many hours do we have, man? Hey,
1: we might have to do a part two. I mean, this is
2: incredible. I can listen to you for hours, to be honest. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I think, you know, Mariah Stewart comes to mind. I mean, she was an early African-American female abolitionist who was such a powerful orator. We just have a few of her speeches extant. She wowed audiences. She made men, by the way, feel very uncomfortable because they're like you know black women in the 1810s and 20s speaking up. Um, I also think of someone like Lemuel Haynes, um, who uh, is in African-American Latinx history. I mean, I just stumbled across him. I mean, he's this young um, uh, African descent man who picks up a gun and he fights in the, the green, with the Green Mountain Boys in the American Revolution. And the minute that Jefferson's Declaration of Independence is being promulgated, and we're always, we're always taught to see that as this incredibly inspirational story as the Declaration is moving around the colonies and people are reading it and like, what is this idea about liberty and stuff? Lemuel Haynes is a young black man. He's already shouldered a weapon for the cause. And his, his first response is, well, this is some nonsense. I'm going to put a halt to this right now because I want to let you know that this can't happen the way you're saying it's going to happen unless you abolish slavery, like right now. And so, you know, Lemuel Haynes would be one person. And then, again, I think, you know, let's bring someone from Mexico, uh, Jose Morelos, and because he's in direct contact with President James Madison, and he's saying, we are patterning in part our revolution on your revolution, but we think we're a little more advanced because we're abolishing slavery. Uh, But let's get together, because you know that the Europeans are going to come after us. They just burned down your capital, by the way. The British did in the War of 1812, but if we formed an alliance between Mexico and the U.S., you have so much to teach us; we have so much to teach you. So, in Mexico, Morelos is seen, of course, as one of the founding fathers. So, I would say, hey, let's trade. Let's switch out one of. The, I, I want, I won't name a name. You name a name. I won't name a name. Let's look. Let, let, let's do the trade, right? I think uh, I think you know Dave Chappelle had the lottery, the racial lottery. Yes, the yes, racial draft. That, yes. Yeah, the racial draft. And so <laughs> I know that's not politically correct, but let's no. pick. Yeah, you know, I, I would pick Morelos. You know, let, let's take Morelos, and then you all could have like the us could give away. I don't know um, someone, but and then also let's not forget. Again, you know people like Thomas Paine. Um I did the other day a right wing person invoked uh the pamphlet Common Sense, mm-hmm. but they 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 made Sam Adams, I think, the author of it. I'm like, what? <laughs> Obviously you haven't read that, uh, have you? Because Thomas Paine was against slavery, he was against the abuse of women, he was for the rights of working people before the revolution, you know, and so you know, let's give props to those to the to those folks too. Awesome.
1: Awesome. Wait. So, wait, which one would you replace, though? Like, would you would you swap out, like, Alex, would it be Hamilton? Who would it be?
2: Yeah, I'd swap out Hamilton because he just, he hated indigenous people, y'all. I mean, I just, I, I hate, you know, look, I, I know that President Obama and everyone loved, you know, Hamilton and everything. I love, again, love the soundtrack. But um, when, when you look into this man's history, it's very sketchy, very yeah. sketchy. Dang it, man. Dang it. Hey, hey, he was sketchy
1: <laughs> in the musical, so he <laughs> was, was he was
2: clearly
0: morally corrupt and and yeah
1: so. yeah and he like probably just had like uh i don't know what i, I don't know how tall he was but like almost like an, a, a complex a little man complex or something i yeah. don't know
2: I, um, mean, I would take someone from later too i mean again if you think of someone who i mean i would take uh, this is counterfactual in a way but i mean i'd be well barnett was smarter than any one of those people we've just that we've been talking about i mean she had it going. And again, she was so dangerous that she, at one point, she had almost every white man in the city of Memphis, Tennessee, armed after her, wanting to shoot her down. Because the truth that she was putting out there about racial violence was so incendiary and so truth telling. The white power structure, of the entire South, said, We've got to do something about this black woman. We we've got to take her out. You know, and that's why she ends up in Chicago you know, mm-hmm. for so many years, but I would, I mean, there's been so many brilliant black women mm-hmm. at, um, and then, you know, and then again, in, in the Chicana movement, I mentioned Dolores Huerta. I mean, I, my students were so blown away by her. Cause I said, all I had to do is say, well, you know, uh, she was, she was 93 or just turned 94. And right away, my students are like, oh, you know, she's like a great, great grandma type. She came here and blew them away. They're she's like, a doll. <laughs> like, how could she be in their 90s she's yeah. still articulate one of them said like yeah, yeah. Uh, and she's and they said she's more radical than anyone we've ever heard in our lives mm. just because she connects our struggles together and i guess that's the thing i'd like you know if, if you know if you're asking us to kind of cl- i hate to close the conversation but that's what I learned in the movement was, was people teaching us how to connect dots, you know, avoiding the kind of the oppression Olympics kind of thing, but saying, hey, how can we get free together? You know, that yeah. was something. And especially if you look, again, women at the forefront, the Tita Martinez, uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, I mean, they were heavily involved in the early 70s. And when you look at what they were writing in those underground feminist and Chicana journals, especially they're writing about the, it's the women who are saying we've got to get free together. Um, and they're at the forefront of it and they're like, um, and, and that's, that's all there is to it.
1: Oh, love it. But I don't know if the founding fathers, uh, deserve (laughs) more
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Right>. dirty dogs <laughs> well it's been a pleasure um having you it's i feel like we could go on and on and i feel like I, i'm walking away i'm like taking notes of like oh i need to look up this person or that person and i've got
0: tabs open i've got tabs yeah. open. <laughs> Name that you put let me go read up on yes. them.
1: yes but for so. our listeners and if you're watching on youtube here is the cover definitely a great read um thank you honestly just thank you for writing this because I grew up in a community where um, Black and Brown people were together, and yet I noticed some of the rubs against each other, you know, against each uh, each other's community. But it was so beautiful to see this. So thank you so much, seriously, um, for putting this work together. Thank it's, you. It's
2: great. Thanks awesome. for inviting me on your wonderful program. Really appreciate it.
1: Yes, and hopefully we'll be in touch. So for Black, Brown, and Bilingual, I'm Lisette Jacobson.
0: And I'm Maurice McDavid.
1: Muchas gracias for tuning in.
0: Adios.